We've just finished a study actually right now that shows if you match people on 10% weight loss, but one group uh, had supervised exercise every day and pretty intense exercise compared to a group who just lost 10% of their body weight, that you improve insulin sensitivity 50% more in those who exercised and lost weight than those who lost weight alone despite having identical weight loss. So exercise may not be very important in helping people lose weight, but it's very important in improving metabolic health. That was Dr. Sam Klein, director of the Center for Human Nutrition at Washington University in St. Louis, explaining how metabolic health connects to obesity. And you're listening to Weight Matters, where we unpack the science behind our weight, why it matters, and the effects it has on our health, psychology, and society. This season, join Drs. Louis Aroni and Katherine Saunders, leading experts in the field of obesity medicine and co-founders of IntelliHealth, as they tackle the many ways weight impacts our broader health and along with experts in the field, explore innovative strategies for preventing and treating obesity. In this episode, Dr. Klein discusses his research about the metabolic abnormalities associated with obesity. He explains how different weight loss methods impact a patient's metabolic health, and he also weighs in on the hot button conversation around the carbohydrate insulin model. We're glad to have you along for this journey. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dive in. Hello, Dr. Klein. We're excited to dive into this conversation. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's always exciting to talk with you, Dr. Aroni. It would be uh, even more exciting if we could uh, be together in the same city one of these days, but maybe at some point in the near future. I'll be happy to meet you in, in New York at Cafe Wa. <laughs> okay. So, Sam, there's there's been some discussion going on about is a calorie a calorie? You know, how do people gain weight? What's causing the epidemic of obesity in our country? And um, it's my understanding that you have an opinion on that. Dr. Uh, David Ludwig and uh, a number of others wrote a paper recently that went into uh, the so-called carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. And I wanted to get your opinion on that. Absolutely, Lou. It's an important topic because... You know, models are important because models help you determine potential directions for research. And so, you know, you develop a model and then you do research to determine whether aspects of those models are accurate or not, because that helps really direct your research programs in order to improve, in this case, obesity, to reduce the prevalence of obesity and reduce, uh, you know, body weight in people who are obese. And so I think there's a couple things that are general as just facts. They're irrefutable facts that need to be considered regarding weight gain and why people become obese. And the first thing is, in everyone who is obese, it has to be because they eat more calories than they burn up over a prolonged period of time. And the increased calories lead to an increase in body fat mass. And then they must maintain that increased calorie intake in order to maintain that new larger body size because a larger body size requires more energy uh, to maintain itself. And that's clear in everyone who is obese. Now, of course, you can eat more calories than you burn up that doesn't turn into fat 
in unusual cases, like if you're a bodybuilder, then you'll eat more calories and you burn up and it turns into muscle. Or if you're in a growth spurt, you know, if you're adolescent in growth, you'll, you'll gain body mass that's not necessarily fat mass. But in general, that's the rule, you know, for obesity. And that's, that's really irrefutable. Now, the reason why people eat more calories and they burn up and become obese really is very variable from person to person. That can be very, very different. And, you know, the brain is a complicated organ. The brain regulates what we do. The brain is responsible for regulating food intake. And the factors that influence the brain's involvement in food intake are really complicated. And there's, as you know very well, there's homeostatic mechanisms where your brain tells you you need more energy to maintain a healthy body size. So if you're starving, your brain will tell you you need to eat. But there's also processes that are hedonic processes, the joy of life, the pleasure of food, eating with friends. These are hedonic responses where you'll eat even though your body may not need those extra calories. And so if you were to eat a steak for dinner, and are full after eating a steak for dinner, you may very well eat ice cream or pie a la mode for dessert, even though you're not hungry at all, because you want to taste that, you want the pleasure of that. And then there's even things like subconscious eating or passive eating, which involves your response to stress or pressure, or even being in a movie theater, for example. You might eat popcorn, even though you're not hungry at all, because that's just what you do when you sit down and watch a movie. And of course, there's other factors that are involved too. It's very complicated, as you know. Your upbringing, how you're trained, how you respond to food, whether your mother was obese when you were being born, when you were fetus in utero, uh, and also whether you were breastfed or not after you're born. So there's multiple, multiple factors in addition to your genes that help regulate your body weight. So those are irrefutable facts. Now, the carbohydrate insulin model is a very simple to understand concept, but just doesn't make physiological sense or even common sense, in my opinion. And this carbohydrate insulin model is that you're not really obese because you eat more calories than you burn up, but you're obese because of the kinds of calories you eat drive your energy into adipose tissue. And this sucks the energy out of your blood and out of your circulation, and that tells your brain to eat more. And the evidence that supports that is very skimpy. The evidence that supports the energy balance model, which is really that these multiple environments affect your brain, and that's what drives your increased energy intake, rather than diverting calories into adipose tissue. And in fact, I would add that if you eat a high-carbohydrate meal, very little of that gets turned into fat. De novo lipogenesis, converting carbohydrate or glucose to lipids in adipose tissue is really very small. This occurs mostly you know, in the liver. And so it's very difficult and it's energy expensive to convert carbohydrate to lipid and adipose tissue. So when you eat a carbohydrate meal, you don't really drive those carbohydrate calories into adipose tissue as is proposed by the carbohydrate insulin model. What you do is you prevent the breakdown of adipose tissue because you inhibit lipolysis because of increased insulin. Sam, thanks for sharing your, your perspective on this model. I know you've done a lot of research on adipose tissue biology. Can you expand upon that in relation to this model a bit? So the, the work that we've done in adipose tissue biology is not so much in its regulation of food intake, although we know, you know, leptin and there's, there's hormones produced by adipose tissue that can influence food intake. And leptin is the obvious one that was discovered in New York with Lou's buddies at Rockefeller and at Columbia. But 
we're, we're looking at mostly is the importance of adipose tissue biology in determining metabolic health and metabolic function. And so there's a subset of people who are obese that seem to be resistant to the adverse effects of excess adiposity. And we've all seen them. They tend to be women with increase in lower body fat mass, and they may have very normal metabolic function, normal glucose tolerance, normal insulin sensitivity, normal blood lipids and lipid profile. And somehow, even though they're obese, they don't have the metabolic adversity of being obese and having any excess body fat. Whereas more typical people who are obese tend to have fat distributed more in their abdominal area, and they tend to have the typical complications of obesity, which include insulin resistance, diabetes, prediabetes, fatty liver disease, dyslipidemia, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so the question is, why do you have these differences between the groups? And that's really the thing that we're studying and determining that there are biological differences in adipose tissue between people who are obese and metabolically healthy compared with those who are obese and metabolically unhealthy. The next question is, whether those biological differences in adipose tissue are actually causally related to improving metabolic health or making people metabolically unhealthy, or are they just associated findings? Wow, this is so interesting, Sam. It, it seems like you know inflammation has gotten so much publicity. Everyone is talking about you know the association of inflammation with obesity, especially now in relation to COVID. But this is a whole new area that most people probably don't know much about. Where do you see the future of this exosome research going, and especially as it will relate to translational medicine? Yeah, I think that this has a hot potential future, that if you can show that these exosomes transport a package of cargo, and the cargo consists of proteins, lipids, and microRNA. Now, all of them might be signaling mechanisms so, so it can deliver their cargo to other tissues. And what we don't know exactly is certain exosomes may deliver certain cargoes to only certain tissues. There may be a lot of specificity there. But from the rodent models, it really shows that microRNA, and they've identified the specific microRNAs that can cause this insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, because if you give them those microRNAs only, you can actually cause insulin resistance or cause insulin sensitivity in the rodent models. So I think as we learn more and more about which of these cargoes regulate metabolic function, metabolic health, we can test whether that actually can be done in humans by giving them the cargo from exosomes that can be delivered to tissues. And so, for example, if you're obese and metabolic unhealthy, you have tenfold more exosomes in your blood than if you're obese and metabolically healthy or if you're lean and healthy. And the number of exosomes in your bloodstream are the same if you're lean, healthy, or metabolically obese and healthy. Now you have a lot more exosomes in the blood if you're metabolically unhealthy. And the cargo of the exosomes are different as well. And if you take those exosomes and incubate them with cells, and maybe now we're studying giving them to rodent models, uh, they can actually regulate metabolic function by injecting them into the animal models as well as, in, as incubating them with cell culture systems. That's really, really interesting. Do you see this becoming a test in the future where you might be able to see who's going to be metabolically unhealthy at an early age? Yeah, that's a good question. It's possible that this could be a biomarker for who's metabolically healthy and unhealthy. And also it could be a treatment. So, you know, it could be a target for therapy as a, a therapeutic option as well as a biomarker. 
but we have other biomarkers that might be easier to measure, you know, like a glucose and insulin levels, you know, or a, a triglyceride concentration, a glucose tolerance test. It might be much easier to measure that than actually to isolate exosomes and measure those exosomes. Many of our listeners would be interested to hear any advice that you have in terms of metabolic health. So when you're thinking about somebody who has obesity and is metabolically healthy versus somebody else with obesity who's metabolically unhealthy, since there's so many different modifiable lifestyle factors and so many different factors that are involved in each of the two physiologies, what would your best advice be for people like this to think about changing lifestyle factors? or anything else that would be, you know, helpful advice given someone's metabolic profile? No, it's a, a very good question. The first question is, what's the definition of metabolically healthy and unhealthy obesity? Because the definitions have ranged. There's more than 30 different definitions that have been published in the literature. And there's no wow. standard definition, which is a real limitation in the field. And so most studies define metabolically healthy obesity as having two or fewer metabolic syndrome criteria and being obese. That means you just don't have metabolic syndrome. So you can actually have type 2 diabetes and be considered metabolically healthy obese if you don't have the other criteria of the metabolic syndrome. So the, the definition really needs to be ramped up. We've defined it very, very aggressively by using a glucose tolerance test as well as a clamp procedure to measure insulin sensitivity and measuring intrahepatic triglyceride content just in a research setting. And when you do that, you find that very few obese people are truly metabolically healthy. And that's why so many obese people who are considered metabolically healthy given the current very loose criteria for metabolic health, 50% of them convert to metabolically unhealthy obesity over 20 years. We don't know what happens to the real metabolically healthy obese. And, and both of you have seen this in your clinical practice and that they typically tend to be women with a lot of lower body fat distribution mm -hmm. and they're just metabolically normal. And they stay that way. In fact, they have sisters that are metabolically uh, normal as well and they stay that way you know, their, whole, their whole life. And those are the people that probably treating them by losing weight won't improve their metabolic health, but it may reduce their risk for developing other complications of obesity. You know, who knows about cancer or arthritis or sleep apnea, all the other things that are associated with obesity. We just know about the relationship with metabolic function. So clearly treating people with metabolic unhealthy obesity can be benefited by dietary induced weight loss and increasing physical activity. We've just finished a study actually right now that shows if you match people on weight loss, 10% weight loss, but one group uh, had supervised exercise every day and pretty intense exercise compared to a group who just lost 10% of their body weight, that you improve insulin sensitivity 50% more in those who exercised and lost weight than those who lost weight alone despite having identical weight loss. So exercise may not be very important in helping people lose weight, but it's mm -hmm. very important in improving metabolic health. So I think we need to reintroduce physical activity as a metabolic therapy and diet as really the weight loss plus metabolic therapy. Right. And that's something that I think we're seeing more and more, that the role of exercise is not necessarily helping someone to lose weight. Maybe it'll help them maintain the weight loss, but there is a powerful metabolic effect that goes way beyond somebody's weight. That's exactly right. And in fact, if you exercise for 30 minutes today, you'll be more insulin sensitive tomorrow. 
and it goes away after a few days. So you don't have to even exercise every day. If you exercise every other day, you'll probably get the full metabolic benefits of exercise. So Sam, do you practice what you preach? I do, except because of my older age uh, <laughs> and my Achilles, I'm now an elliptical champion. I don't run mm. uh, outside anymore, but I go in the elliptical and I even though I don't believe that the carbohydrate insulin model is viable, it doesn't mean that a low-carbohydrate diet is not good for you or healthy. It just <laughs> means that that model may not be actually accurate. And I do reduce my you know, sugar intake and uh, high glycemic index foods. Right. So if you saw a patient with metabolic syndrome, a large waist circumference, high triglycerides, low HDL, and impaired uh, glucose tolerance, what kind of diet would you prescribe for that patient? So I think that there are some diets that are proven to be useful. And so I think even things like a Mediterranean diet would be useful, a DASH diet, and a low-carbohydrate diet also is useful, and even a plant-based diet. So I think it's really kind of evaluating what you think the person will tolerate. We've done studies with the low-carbohydrate diets, and it, it does give you beneficial effects in terms of weight loss, but it's very hard to stick with those diets long-term. So I think trying to evaluate what you think someone can be compliant with long-term is the way to go. And so plant-based diets, Mediterranean diet, DASH diet, low-carbohydrate diets, all of those, I think, are useful in helping people with metabolic syndrome. So Sam, what's your opinion of alcohol? How does alcohol fit into everything we're talking about? Yeah, it's a tough one because I love alcohol. And as Lou knows, and, uh, we both love alcohol. Yeah, we do. <laughs> but now the data are even a little bit of alcohol is not good for you. And alcohol is an appetite stimulant. And so mm -hmm. alcohol is not great for obesity. But I think if you do drink alcohol, you need to count those calories. They're not naked. They're not empty calories. They're real calories. <laughs> I mean, so that you really have to think about that. And, you know, the quality of life and joy of life is very important as well. And so moderation is the key. That's right. I mean, there, there are some diets where we joke around when we all get together and say, you may not live longer, but it's going to seem like a lot longer because it's You're so right. boring. <laughs> exactly. But no diet is boring with Lou Aroni. <laughs> Thank you, sir. So let me ask you another question about some of the research you've done, and that is the work that you did on liposuction. What did you find when you looked at the potential metabolic benefits of liposuction? Yeah, so the idea, obviously, is that if having too much fat is bad, having less fat is good, which we know when you lose weight, you reduce your body fat and you become metabolically healthier. Is there a simpler way to do that by just sucking out the fat rather than going through the medieval torture of eating less food? And there has been some anecdotal data suggesting that liposuction can cause metabolic benefits. So we did a study where we had women with type 2 diabetes and women that had normal glucose tolerance. And we removed 10 kilograms of body fat by liposuction. And that's at one very rigorous, difficult setting of hours where the surgeon removed subcutaneous abdominal fat from these women during this procedure, which was equal to about a 12% weight loss had they lost that fat by dieting. And that certainly should have caused significant metabolic benefits. But we found that by removing the fat by liposuction, there was absolutely no difference at all in glucose tolerance, blood lipids, blood glucose, insulin, or insulin sensitivity measured very carefully with the hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp procedure. And so removing fat 
by liposuction removes billions of fat cells, but it doesn't do the same thing as reducing fat by eating less calories than you burn up. Because when you do that, you shrink the size of your remaining fat cells, and you also reduce fat in certain organs like liver, muscle tissue, and those seems to be very important in generating metabolic health. So just sucking out fat or cutting out fat is not gonna make you metabolically healthier. When you reduce the fat or lose fat, by dieting, you keep your fat cells pretty much, but you make them smaller. And you do reduce the fibrosis in the fat cells, the collagen gene expression. You reduce the inflammation as well. That's actually not associated with the metabolic benefit you know, after weight loss. And maybe you improve your exosomes and other things that cause, and secretion of PI-1. Because we have found if you lose weight by dieting, or by bariatric surgery, which is the same kind of thing, you decrease the circulation of PI-1, which may actually be involved in causing insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. And if you take the exosomes, this is not published yet, but if you take the exosomes from people who have lost weight, 20% body weight, and incubate those exosomes with muscle cells and liver cells, they cause insulin sensitivity compared to the, their exosomes before they lost the weight. So losing weight also changes the signals that come out of your adipose tissue that might cause insulin resistance in other organs. Losing weight by negative energy balance, yeah, not by liposuction. Right, but it makes a lot of sense that your fat cells are sending messages around and that could be the way. I mean, we know that certain hormones, adiponectin is an example, that goes in the direction of improving insulin sensitivity and reducing vascular disease. So it looks like there may be other systems that are now just being discovered that also have these kinds of benefits. And, you know, we knew that there had to be other kinds of messaging systems. It's just that nobody knew what they were. Exactly. And so as we understand more and more what are these signals from adipose tissue, we can hopefully begin to understand which ones are important, which ones make a big contribution versus minimal contribution. And it may be that the signals together make a contribution. Each one individually is not, doesn't do very much, so it may be hard to pick up. Gosh, everything is, is so complicated and there's still so much that we don't know. Where do you think the future of the adipose tissue biology field is going and the, the future of obesity medicine in general from your perspective? Well, there's, there's a couple obvious areas and that is still understanding why does excess body fat cause metabolic disease and also with metabolic disease, we should include Alzheimer's disease, you know, as well, because, you know, these exosomes actually can go to the brain and it looks like exosomes can help deliver tau throughout the brain and contribute to Alzheimer's disease as well with these tangles of fibrils, you know, from the tau protein and A-beta protein as well. And so the, the one thing is, what's the mechanism of why excess body fat causes these problems. And then the second thing is, why is weight loss so therapeutic? We really don't understand why losing weight makes everything better. And even before you lose much weight, you know, in the beginning, just negative energy balance with very little weight loss can improve metabolic function. And so understanding what negative energy balance does, what the reduction of body fat through low energy intake does in terms of the mechanisms of causing an improvement metabolic function is really an important area for future research. 
And then the last thing is, of course, is what you talked about in the beginning, the factors that regulate food intake. And the one obvious example is, why does bariatric surgery cause people to eat less food? If we could understand that, we could really go a long way in developing better therapies to help people reduce food intake. Right. And you're bringing up an important point. A lot of people think that bariatric surgery shrinks the stomach and reduces food intake by that mechanism, but that is far from what's going on. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes, changing the hormones that regulate body weight in a direction that would tend to make you eat less. Exactly right. Yeah, clearly that's not the reason, Is but just by making your stomach smaller, not at all. There's something behind the scenes, meaning behind your uh, skull. Uh, it's really the, that's the scene <laughs> your where brain. things are really, in your brain, right, <laughs> that are regulating stuff. So what are the signals it's delivering to the brain? Let's get into that a little bit more. I'd love to talk about the Alzheimer's connection. Can you expand on the brain adipose connection for us? We do know that type 2 diabetes and obesity increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so insulin resistance increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And the mechanism for that is unclear. Is, is a, does insulin resistance in the brain involved in this in terms of glucose and insulin metabolism in the brain in terms of the brain function and we, you know, in the production of tau and amyloid beta because those are the two proteins that we know are involved in the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease. And so I think we can include Alzheimer's disease as part of the metabolic abnormalities associated with obesity. It's, it's part of the, the metabolic syndrome. The mechanisms for it are just really not known. And whether exosomes play a role, insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance play a role is unclear. We know if you give people insulin nasally, you can actually maybe improve, you know, in experimental studies, you might be able to improve some of these pathological features in the brain regarding Alzheimer's disease. Right. So what major advances do you see coming over the next couple of years in the field of obesity medicine? I think we're going to have better medications, as you know. And so the GLP-1 agonists have been a game changer at the high doses of the GLP-1 agonists. But they're now di dual and triple agonists that are being developed that also have potent effects on body weight. And those potent effects on body weight lead to potent effects on metabolic health and metabolic function. And so when you combine the advances in pharmacotherapy, which were really avoided for years because obesity drugs weren't selling and there are all these other problems and stigmas about it. Now there's been a renewed interest of industry to develop obesity medications. And so I think the future is going to have some very potent, we have them right now, but in the future will be even more potent therapies for treating obesity that are pharmacological therapies. Then in addition to that, we know that there are better therapies beyond pharmacotherapy for treating obesity, like the study, the direct trial in the UK, where out of family practices, private practices, by giving people regulated diets and following them carefully with type 2 diabetes, you could actually get significant weight loss in a lot of people without even incorporating pharmacotherapy. And so then using this multimodal approach of multiple drugs, like you do for other diseases, the dual and triple agonists plus other medications, and combining that with better behavioral approaches that are provided through medical systems will really be a key. Now, the real problem with obesity is the environment, which is very difficult to change. So we know that the variability in BMI among people has a very big genetic component to it. But the reason for obesity is an environmental 
factor. And so our environment has changed that are making people obese. And then that suggests you've got to change the environment to try and make people lean again. And that's very, very difficult to do. How do you stop the commercials for these foods? You know, how do you stop companies making these tasty processed snacks that you just can't eat one of, you know, all of that, you know, how do you get rid of labor-saving devices? You know, so the environment is very, very difficult to change. So it's going to, I think, be a combination of pharmacotherapy, in conjunction with medical systems that will support that pharmacotherapy. And then let's not forget bariatric surgery will keep getting better and better at doing this as well. Thank you for bringing all of that up, Sam. It's, you know, you really highlight how complicated the whole picture is. When we see patients, you know, we do quite an extensive initial evaluation and we look at tons of labs. And I always explain to patients that the reason why we ask so many questions and look at so many labs is that there's so many factors, there's so many barriers, and it's not just about finding the right diet. It's about really identifying, you know, the different factors that impact each person's unique situation and coming up with a really personalized plan that that's key to success. But you're right also in terms of the environment, we're just up against so much. It's very frustrating to be doing what we're doing when our environment is so incredibly obesogenic. I want to ask you a big picture question. If you could wave a magic wand and change how we in the medical community approach obesity, what would you change and why? Yeah, so one thing would be is training in medical school and residency because it's very difficult for physicians to adequately manage obesity because they've had no training they have and they don't even know how to use the medications that are being developed for obesity management they know how to use new medications for diabetes because they've been trained in diabetes management for example and so i think one thing is training physicians to manage obesity and with that developing not just physician education and physician training, but I think we need to have community support in managing obesity through community health workers that can provide both behavior education and behavior modification techniques, getting access to more people that are available and affordable for people to have access to evidence-based obesity management. Yeah, we obviously agree completely, and that's what we've been working on for a number of years to try to get this type of information out in a, an entire package that institutions like ours and yours can deliver to um, patients who have these health problems that are related to their obesity. And what you're doing is, is so nice because you're developing these internet-based platforms. Those don't require a physician often that you could have community health workers or dietitians, you know, lower costs, lower pay that can implement these programs and helping people with their weight management. And then the physician would really be responsible for the pharmacotherapy component of it. Yeah, we already published a paper on that with researchers at the Brigham in uh, October. So, you know, we're, we're well on our way to developing those systems. I was just going to say that, that that's exactly what we've been talking about because our whole mission is to scale and democratize access to this type of, you know, effective, safe medical management of obesity. And I'm literally one of fewer than 100 maybe now fellowship trained obesity medicine physicians and 74% of the country, you know, has overweight or obesity. So the answer clearly has to be technology plus, you know, health coaches, dietitians, a whole team. It can't just center around physicians. Absolutely. And this is such a major 
public health problem, economic problem. This is breaking the bank. And it seems the politicians have, this has not been a platform. COVID is nothing compared to obesity, I think, in terms of overall health and cost. And so it's uh, interesting that this is not getting the attention that it deserves. Yeah, I completely agree. But one, one interesting thing about COVID, now that you mention it, is that it's brought obesity into focus for a lot of people because it's very clear that people with obesity are at higher risk due to COVID. They're more likely to be hospitalized, they're more likely to be in the ICU and to die. And I think that has had an impact on the way that healthcare systems look at obesity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that it took COVID to get people more interested in, in obesity. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the receptors for COVID, you know, in, in adipose tissue, you know, the receptors are there for the COVID virus. Mm -hmm. So since not everybody who's listening to this podcast has access to an obesity medicine expert, what would be one tip that you could give listeners? It's very difficult. First of all, you have to have access and you have to be able to afford it. And so obesity management is not reimbursed very well. And so it's, it's very difficult to do. And so you really need to try and seek out a professional who is knowledgeable in this area to help you through it. It doesn't even have to be a physician. It can be someone, you know, a dietitian, a psychologist, or some other person that has some expertise in helping you walk through this. I'm not sure if there's websites to, maybe you could educate me, or are there websites you can go to that can lead you to people in your community that might be able to help with weight management, depending on where you live? Well, interestingly, Sam, a lot of this work is now being done online. So um, our own uh, program here at Wild Cornell has uh, gone from purely face-to-face -face in the office to 90% online practice over the uh, course of the COVID pandemic. So I think that the result of that is going to be much greater access for the average person. And uh, we've been endeavoring to get insurance coverage for the kinds of treatments that we have. And, and we do get insurance coverage because we see people primarily with health problems related to their weight. And so, um, you know, I, th I think we're on the verge of some new thinking about obesity because now in the era of big data, uh, insurers and employers are seeing how much it's costing them to take care of people with obesity. And, and that is driving an interest in weight loss. COVID has taught us that you can do things without coming to someone's office. And now with the newer medications that are available now and will be available in the next year or so, uh, there will be a lot more options that can be done and hopefully will be affordable. And so this will be the, the future approach. Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, we talk about COVID highlighting the importance of treating obesity, but COVID has also highlighted the importance of telemedicine. And it's made telemedicine just so, you know, mainstream. There were so many people who were very opposed to doing anything through telemedicine or really using technology for, for health initiatives at all. And now I would say that the majority of our patients love it and no longer want to take half a day off from work to come travel and see us. So, you know, the role of technology and the role of telemedicine because of the pandemic has been really exciting for our field of obesity medicine. Yeah. So this is the silver lining of the COVID epidemic. <laughs> it's actually mm -hmm. proven things we knew were possible, uh, really, yeah. but we never did them. And now because we we're forced to do them, now we really know that they're possible and doable. 
Yeah, exactly. So we can get to more people and deliver better care. Yes. So, Sam, it's great having you here on the show. I can't thank you enough for stopping by to talk to us today. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in the near future. Great to see both of you in the near future as well. And I hope once things settle down, we'll be in Manhattan. We'll go out for a light dinner and a drink. (laughs) Great idea. (laughs) Thanks, Sam. We're looking forward to that. Thank you for listening to Weight Matters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To learn more about how Dr. Saunders and Dr. Aroni are working to transform specialized treatments for chronic conditions through the best in medical science and advanced technologies, visit IntelliHealth.co backslash podcast. And be sure to follow, rate, and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts. 